As we stand, let's pray. And let that light shine upon us now, we pray, O God. Shine in our hearts with illumination. Shine in through your word through inspiration. And change our lives, we pray, because that light has shone on us. Amen. Please sit. And please find Luke chapter 5. It's on page uh, 1032. At the cathedral on Thursday, the bishop spoke to uh, church wardens, and it was unusual, the PCC members there as well, and he began with a story of a trip he'd taken with uh, the then Archbishop of Canterbury, Robert Runcie. They'd gone to Seoul in Korea, where everything was impeccably organized, except for one typo. Uh, when the Archbishop was called on to speak at a particular service. And in the service sheet, the congregation was serenely informed that he would be bringing a massage. (laughs) Massages exist to relieve tension. But this story today, like so many other gospel stories, is heaving with tension. And it's not resolved at the end. And it's the preacher's job not to massage the tension away, but in a sense to leave us tense. So that only as we follow the life of the gospel out there beyond those doors does the tension disappear. As uh, John was just praying towards the end of our, our prayers, this is a story And it echoes in lives full of risk and challenge and tension. And we'll do it a disservice if we get to the end of it and feel we've kind of nailed it, got it all sorted, there's nothing to do. Living it is what's left to do. It is only in Luke, this story, and it's one of a few stories that follow chapter 4 and verse 43. But Jesus said... I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Well, let's uh, go back for a moment, because I want you to appreciate some of the shape. Last week, if you were with us, you found us in chapter 4, so flip back a page. And to Jesus' reading and then sermon, well, it wasn't really a sermon, it was just a few words. Uh, in Nazareth, uh, verses uh, 4, 14 to 30. Then he moves on to Capernaum. Uh, There's an exercise of power, verses 31 to 37, when there's an exorcism. And I'm just going to do the shape. There's another exercise of power when there's a healing in verses 38 through to 44. There's another exercise of power with something about sin. He's now moved to the uh, lakeside in the story today through to verse 11 of of chapter 5. There's another exercise of power over the man with leprosy, verses 12 
uh, to 16. Something around uncleanness here. There's another exercise of power. Verses 17 through to 26. And again here with something about sin. Uh, he's walking through the area and uh, verses 27 to 32, there's now a calling as he powerfully summons Levi uh, to follow him. And again, there's an interaction about sin. Well, I guess some of you will know roughly that shape, but first of all, I just want you to register that it's from the moment he stands up in that synagogue, it's all about power. He exercises power, but then what that is about turns out to be something to do with sin. There's an increasing level of tension throughout those stories as other people start to notice what's going on, especially the old guard, the Pharisees, the scribes and so on. And over time, we'll have to pay attention to them, but not today. Today, the pattern I just want you to notice is there's something about power that he does and something about sin that he says. Now, he do, he, that's the pattern because in each of these stories, something happens. And that can be a problem because we come to these stories and think, well, we didn't see uh, a miraculous draft of fishes. We didn't see a healing miracle last week. And we're going to need to face the tension around that sort of thing not happening in our lives. At least not around ourselves. We've got a series on the kingdom of God. Most of the stories are from the Gospels. In most of the stories from the Gospels, something happens. Too often, stories from the Gospels become little more than uh, little moral lessons with all of the what happens sucked out of them. And we're going to have to put that back and ask the question, how do we get the gospel from the gospels, the good news from the good news? This is not the gospel story that has the early calling of the disciples as they are mending their nets. Luke doesn't have that. So the first we have heard of Simon is when in chapter 4, Jesus has gone to his home and healed Simon's mother-in-law of a fever. Now, you can go to Capernaum's ruins today. And the evidence is remarkably strong that you can actually see that house where he did it. Um, It's extraordinary, but it is true that there's a very strong evidence that you can see the house where that happened. Whatever the the relationship is between Jesus and Simon, it's close enough by this point that... uh, when chapter 5 opens, that when Jesus wants to talk to the crowds, he can ask Simon in his boat just to push out a bit. It's quite shallow where they were, in the north, uh, northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. Push out a little so that Jesus can talk to the people from the boat, uh, which would have been moored there. And then Jesus says, push out deeper and let down the nets. Simon thinks, at one level, he's barking mad. Master... He says in verse 5, it's fairly polite, but not all that polite. It's not unique. Uh, This advice from you falls into the category, if I may say so as a fisherman, of 
you're a great carpenter. <laughs> and you want me to lay da- let down the nets in broad daylight. Nets were made of linen, and they are visible in daylight. So you never fished in daytime. Nonetheless, says Simon, because you say so, I will do it. Now, it's a huge commitment on Simon Peter's part. They'd been washing the nets, and once they return from this completely pointless expedition, as Simon expects it to be, they're going to have to wash the nets all over again. But nonetheless, he does do it because Jesus says so. We don't know what the relationship's been up to this point, but there's something to be taken from those words. Because you say so, I will do what you say. And of course, as we know from the story, they can barely haul the nets in from the weight of the fish. They have to call for help. Jesus is evidently still with them in the boat so that Peter offers the reaction that we get in verse 8. And I want to notice some things here as he falls at Jesus' feet. It's when, first of all, it's when uh, Peter sees the miracle that he falls at Jesus' feet. It's not a reaction to some kind of holy glow around Jesus. And notice, too, that Master, in verse 5, has now become Lord in verse 8. Master's just kind of a slightly polite term for someone who would have known the law. But Lord is a great deal more than that. And the form of his reaction is fascinating. Imagine what Hollywood would do with this. Um, uh, maybe that's in my mind. I went to see uh, uh, Star Trek the other day, and at some point in the Star Trek movie, someone says, it's a miracle. Uh, to which Spock says, there is no such thing. <laughs> well, I'm glad to be on happier territory now. If this were Hollywood, such an amazing thing as this would be followed by hugs and tears and broad smiles. How different from the reaction that actually happens. Isaiah had a vision of God in the temple. And his reaction was to fall apart. I am ruined. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, he said. And Peter here is exactly the same. Go away. Get out. I'm too much the sinner for you to be anywhere near me. I am a sinful man, verse 8. And then Jesus promises that Peter will be catching people. And Peter does something utterly mad. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. The most ancient documents we have are mostly wills. Because property matters. Think how many stories of Jesus depend on property for their force. And Peter, together with the others, just walks away from his property. Well, that's pretty much what happens. But if we pay attention to some of the details, more of the picture is revealed. And I want to focus on three things. Notice first that it is the knowledge of Jesus' work in its graciousness, abundance, goodness that moves Peter. And that's not the first time that that's happened. Do you remember what happened last week? Jesus announced the year of the Lord's favor, his grace. 
and peculiarly the announcement of graciousness, of kindness, acts like a knife. The people around him so do not want grace to be the basis that they're right with God, that they try to kill him. Here, in this story today, Jesus uh, demonstrates grace and generosity, and the experience of grace acts like a knife to Peter's heart. And it's astonishing for a man that would have known his Isaiah, as Peter would have done. Yes, they were fishermen. Yes, they weren't terribly well educated as we would think of it, but they would have known their scriptures. Peter transfers to Jesus the reality of the holiness that Isaiah saw in the temple itself. In front of our eyes, Jesus is made the measure of sin and holiness. It's a breathtaking moment for anyone who knows the Jewish law. But unlike the people, the days before, in Nazareth, Peter comes out of it the right side of the knife. Secondly, and any preacher is deeply embarrassed by this fact, did you notice that it was the miracle that had the impact on Peter, and it did so after a sermon had had no effect whatsoever. Jesus has been sitting in the boat and instructing the people, verse 3, and Peter hasn't noticed a thing. But when Jesus gets onto Peter's territory, then everything changes. This is the world Peter understands. Just as Jesus spoke of a topsy-turvy world in which the oppressed are released and the blind receive sight, so in Peter's world, fishing now happens in daylight and empty nets are filled. And when that happens, Peter notices. Of course, Jesus couldn't do that today. Can you imagine the insurance premium you would have to pay to take an inexperienced and useless carpenter onto a North Sea fishing boat? Where I really want to put the emphasis today is on the third thing in verse 10. This is a series on the kingdom of God. And I've chosen that theme deliberately because it's really focused in the Gospels. And I fear that we may otherwise, if we forget the kingdom of God, we may become too focused on the narrowest definition of what it means to be saved. Jesus dying on the cross for my sins. That is true. It is indeed the heart of the gospel. But it's the heart of something that's much bigger. It's true that all these stories focus on sin. But the experience of the sinners was so much richer than what forgiveness might mean if we set it at too narrow a definition. Consider how the sequence works in this story. In reaction to the work of God, Peter uh, recognizes himself to be a sinner. That recognition becomes a kind of repentance. He falls at Jesus' feet and says, I'm a sinful man. So far, so typical. The work of God recognition of our status, and a turning from it. So far, so typical. But then, Jesus' response 
is, first of all, don't be afraid. Well, that is the classic response from heaven to earth. Do you remember all those angels? The angel that visits Gideon, don't be afraid. Gabriel comes to Mary, fear not. Fear not. You don't need to be afraid. There is peace. It's okay. We are at peace here. We live in reconciliation. But, then Peter receives the call, from now on, you will catch me. There is peace, yes, but it is a peace that has movement built into it. It's not the peace of being still. It is the peace that's going on to do something. If many of us were asked the gospel, I think we might answer in terms that stopped at forgiveness, at the challenge of the sinner finding reconciliation. But that is not the whole gospel as this story tells it. The whole gospel moves immediately, and very immediately, barely alights on forgiveness to call and summons. For Peter, the gospel amounts to the discovery of what all along he's been called to be, someone who catches things. Only now, it's going to be people. And he leaves everything. Up to now, it's just been the loan of a boat for a few minutes. But now this is a life that's going to be devoted to the Lord. I've said this before in conversations, but I'm not sure I've said it in a sermon. If you don't like it, then I can only tell you it's a statistic can't argue with the statistic. This statistic is true, but we've got to be careful with any statistic. If you ask women why they are Christians, not how they became, but why they are Christians, the majority response is because of forgiveness. If you ask men why they are Christians, not how they became Christians, but why they are Christians, the majority response is because of purpose for the future. One looks back to the experience of being forgiven for the past. One needs to look forward to the future. Now, those are snapshots. They do not constrain us. They are only majority responses. Of course, it'll be the other way around in many cases. But at the very least, it says that the full gospel has to have both elements in it. We can't say don't tell women about the purpose or men about forgiveness. The full gospel looks back and looks forward. And we sometimes think that the life of discipleship, of following the life forward, is kind of the bad news that follows the good news. I still remember the sequence of talks that was operative at the camps I used to assist on for teenagers. There was talk on God, there was talk on sin, there was a talk on Jesus, there was a talk on cross, there was a talk on how to respond, and that was your gospel. By by talk five, you'd got to the gospel. And you were supposed to respond and, uh, in a sense, fall at the uh, feet of God and say, I've got it, I repent. Then you tell them about Bible, prayer, and church. And it always felt like the bad news after the good news. We've given you the good news, now you have to have a disciplined discipleship with 
the following things. Jesus doesn't say that. The summons to discipleship, to follow, is the summons to find your true meaning in who you've always been all along. But to do so along the path that Jesus has trodden following him. And that summons is itself part of the good news. What we should have done is say, God, sin, Jesus, cross, respond, summons. And that's the good news. And it puts some questions, I think, to our discipleship, doesn't it? Because I'm not the only one who's lived in that pattern. Does your following of Jesus Christ, whatever that looks like for you, look like a good news element that you would commend to someone else as part of the gospel itself? I'll say that again. Does your following of Jesus Christ look like a good news story that you would commend to someone else as part of the gospel itself. I bet lots of us could articulate the gospel we learned about the cross and what Jesus does for everyone. But here's a challenge. Can you articulate good news about life as you are following the track of Christ now such that that is good news for someone else. It's Trinity Sunday. And perhaps because last week was Pentecost, I wonder whether sometimes we have a view of the Spirit's work that's lacking. These days, rightly, we have learned so much more about his gifts. We think of his fruit, and he's about those things. But it's also the Spirit who guides That doesn't sound very exciting. But it means it's the Spirit who calls and summons and leads us down the path, the tracks of Christ. We're confronted by our sin against a holy God, saved by a powerful Lord, and summoned by a gracious Spirit. I said earlier that one of our challenges is that we may learn from a story like this some features, but it all depends on a miracle that we haven't seen, haven't performed. So think of it this way. In a world that knew about sin, Jesus shows who he is, speaks to their sin, but immediately moves on to the summons. I want to ask you, what is the world of those you care about? It's unlikely to be sin. You won't get very far, I think, if you say, do you know what I learned in church on Sunday is that there are six stories and they mostly talk about sin. And that's what I want to share with you today. Probably won't get very far with that. And perhaps because we know we won't get very far with that, we don't say it. But you can translate. Last week, Diana led us in... Uh, the Lord's Prayer, and we were invited to say it in whatever language was most native to us. We are given the gift of translation. It's unlikely to be sin that dominates the sense of the persons you care about, but it might well be a sense of failure, a sense of falling short, a sense of non-acceptance. 
So ask yourself, where is Christ's abundance, grace, and generosity going to show up in their lives? I said earlier, we're going to have Christianity explored. And let me suggest something for your small group. Don't just say, oh, it's coming up. Don't even just say, what are we going to do about it? Why not spend time in your groups speaking and then praying for your close friends who don't know Christ? If they were believers, what would the summons, what's the equivalent for them of a great catch of fish? Working with who they already are. It doesn't have to be the same for each one. And that may give a clue to where abundance and goodness may show up in their lives. Pray for that. But allow for exceptions. Following can take predictable directions. You'll be catching people, given that you're a fisherman. Uh huh. But also unpredictable ones. Someone missed her bus on Wednesday. Ingrid Loyo-Kennett spent some time keeping attackers calm and occupied and then got on her bus. She's been hailed as a hero. Perhaps she is, but she doesn't see it that way. She just did what she felt. She just worked out of her calling as a mum, former teacher, first aider, youth helper, and yes, committed Catholic Christian. Who knew? Sometimes it's surprising, but rarely. Mostly it's just normal kingdom work. Jesus knew what mattered to Peter. Well, we have friends whom we have got to know. Where will the kingdom show up for them in all its graciousness and goodness in you? And if you don't know an answer to that question, take that question to your group and make that your prayer this week. Let's pray now. Lord God, at the heart of our story today is this moment of extraordinary tension. As the penny drops for Peter, he falls at his knees and he says, Lord, for the first time. And part of us would like it if the story ended with uh, Jesus saying, that's okay, you've understood who I am now, go in peace. But he doesn't. He puts more tension back into Peter's life and says, uh, you're going to have the uh, task and calling of following me for the whole of your life. Who knows what that will bring, what risks you will take. And Lord, as we come to you, we come uh, largely as those who have fallen on our knees and said, Lord, and asked forgiveness for our sins. And we would love it if we left here today with a sense of profound peace and calm because everything's okay and serene. But it isn't like that. You send us out still with that sense of tension, still knowing that there are risks not yet taken, challenges not yet faced. 
And yet for Peter, that moment in that boat served as what he needed for the whole of his life. And we pray that because we've been together, because we've attended to your word, because we've heard the story of what it meant for one man to fall on his knees, then we who have done the same may also for the whole of our lives be able to live in the tension that comes of not knowing what service of you, what discipleship of you today will bring. And in the middle of that following, we pray that you would give us creativity from your spirit to know how to present to others we care for the grace of Jesus Christ, the goodness of the living God. And where we don't know that, give us the grace to come humbly before you and ask, for the wisdom of your spirit. Amen.